Louie, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Rose? Where we're going, we don't need Rose. No. I am your father. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. You're listening to After the Ending, the only film podcast where we tell you what happens after the ending of your favorite films. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Spring and Phil Edwards. Hello and welcome to After the Ending. I'm Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards. And Phil, I think we're going to have maybe uh, like a, a special guest, at least in spirit, in here in this episode with us today. Do you know who I'm talking about? Uh, no. <laughs> Who's that, Mike? Who are we... Oh, I think maybe Tom Hardy might be oh, gosh, joining yeah, okay, us for yeah, this yeah. episode. Yes, that's correct. We've got Bane or Tom Hardy. They're one and the same, but, uh, you know, he always likes doing his silly voice and he's wearing the mask. Yeah, I mean, to be clear, Tom Hardy's not actually going to appear on this episode, but uh, anybody who knows us and our love for bad impressions and who has seen one of our movies tonight, which uh, kind of stars Tom Hardy as a bad impression, I think will... Uh... Hey, which movie is that, Mike? <laughs> Uh, Flubber, I believe, actually, if I'm not mistaken. Um, oh, that's a good callback, Mom. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, this episode may veer into the silly... But, but just to let people know, Tom Hardy is actually here tonight, but he's he's, he's going to stay in character <laughs> the whole time. Well, he is very method, so I, I can see that. <laughs> yes, I am, Mike. Well, uh, Phil, or, or Tom, whichever, who'd ever like to take this, why don't you tell... He's just had to go the loo. Oh, all right. Well, Phil, then why don't you tell people what we're going to be talking about in this week's episode? If they haven't already yes. figured it out. Yes. <laughs> we're doing Star Trek Nemesis. <laughs> right. No. Okay. <laughs> uh, we're going after the ending of 12 Angry Men, the classic 1957 version, and also The Dark Knight Rises. There you go. That would be, of course, the... <laughs> or whatever else Christopher Nolan decides to throw in. It's either chanting or some horns. Yes, uh, we all know uh, that you are a huge, huge Christopher Nolan fan. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, I believe your go-to quote about Christopher Nolan is, so cold. Why? Why does it have to be yeah. so cold? Exactly, yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, for, for new listeners, I, I really like Memento. I, thought, I think that was a brilliant film. Really like Memento. Right. But as, as it's, the films have gone on, I've just... I like them less and less. Uh, understandable. And for for those same new listeners, I like most Christopher Nolan films quite a bit. Dunkirk being the upset, exception, which I know is weird because a lot of people like that movie. I'm, I'm not a fan. Oh, but, don't uh, care. 300,000 uh, people on the beach and you saw about 200. What <laughs> right. the hell? Yeah. yeah, we have the same Sorry. issues with that movie. But yeah. uh, I love some of his other films like Inception and Interstellar. and Oh, I quite, I quite liked Interstellar, yeah. Uh, Insomnia and other movies that start with the word in. Yes. Um, you know, but uh, I do have some problems with, uh, with some of his films, but I like most of them. Uh, unfortunately, tonight's film isn't necessarily one of them, but we'll get to that in a minute. Yeah, so that's later on, and we've also got our top 10 films. What are we doing this week, Mike? Well, as, as hopefully you've been listening, you'll know that we're in the middle of our Movies We Missed. So this week is our top 10 Movies We Missed from the 1990s. And that is where we recount uh, movies from the 1990s that either didn't make our lists when we first did the years from the 90s, or that we have recently discovered since we did those lists. And uh, much like last week with the 80s, this was definitely a tough list to narrow down. But some good films on there. So it is a jam-packed episode. Yeah, lots to do, lots to do. So should we crack on? Yeah, let's get cracking. Why don't you start things off, Phil, by taking us through the events of 12 Angry Men. Okay then, so 12 Angry Men, this is the 1957 version. Uh, this one's directed by Sidney Lumet, and it stars a whole cast of people, but it's uh, the main one is uh, Henry Fonda, and also Jack Gordon, Jack Klugman, lots of other people. But uh, it's set in New York City, and where we, we follow a jury who's deliberating on a case of an 18-year-old boy from a slum who's on trial for allegedly stabbing his father to death. If there's reasonable doubt, then they will find him not guilty and he can go free. But if he's found guilty, he will get the death sentence. Uh, during the first vote, all the jurors vote guilty except for juror number eight, played by Henry Fonda. He argues that they should spend more time going over the case instead of just uh, with the knee-jerk reaction. They argue and discuss the various aspects of the case, the murder weapon, which is a switchblade, and juror number eight has found that it's actually easy to get hold of one. They also discuss the witnesses, the alibi, and their personal opinions and relationships with their own families have coloured their opinions, and we, we learn a little bit about them. But eventually, they find that the boy is not guilty, and it's a unanimous verdict. Then at the end of the day, all the jurors leave, and jurors 8 and 9 exchange their names, uh, Davis and McArdle, and they all return to their everyday lives. 
and that's 12 angry men very very well done thank you that's a that's a nice summation which is, sounds thank like a legal much. term <laughs> <laughs> objection <laughs> you can't object yet overruled i think you meant to say oh objection yeah overruled oh <laughs> Anyway, so uh, so Phil, what do you think of Twelve Angry Men? Oh, I love it. I think it's a, it's a brilliant movie, brilliant story. It's one of my favorites. The cast is just fantastic. On paper, it sounds like quite a boring thing. Right. It sounds like your normal police procedural, but it does it so well, and it just it brings in the claustrophobia of these people stuck in a this room on a hot day, and just arguing over it. and the the arguments they put forward. You can see. You can see all sides of the arguments because it's done so well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love it. What about you? I think it's a stone cold classic. I mean, honestly, it's. It's an amazing film. It's riveting from start to finish. And I, I do think, you know, sometimes we, we always try and do films on the show that we, we think people have seen. And obviously we always try and get one kind of bigger movie, one kind of smaller movie. This is one of those films that I'm hoping that people will seek out if they haven't seen it after listening to us talk about it, because it's, it is an amazing movie. And I know some people don't always gravitate towards the black and whites, the classics. Yeah. But this is one of those ones you just have to see. It is phenomenal. So, yeah, I love it. Yeah, it, it is amazing. It's 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 stunning film where considering it is just 12 men talking yeah. in yeah. a room. I mean, it's, uh, it's like yeah, getting... But you, you can't turn away. Oh, totally. But there's like some films where it's just like two or three people talking and the camera work and everything is just so rubbish. You just, you just, you just can't, you don't pay attention. But this is just, it's amazing. It's, it's a masterclass in filmmaking. I agree. I agree. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Well, that's what happened in the film. What happens then on the day after? All right. Well, the room is hot. Everyone in it is sweating. Juror number two can read the room, and he doesn't like what he sees. Most of the people, ten men and two women, look tired and frustrated. It's been two days already, and the jury is split. The case seems simple at first glance. A man is accused of murdering a woman, his ex-girlfriend, who had spurned him just a week earlier. There's no doubt that the defendant is an unpleasant man, and there's little doubt that he probably wasn't the type of man who treated women well. But there were no witnesses, and the physical evidence was circumstantial at best. But it was clear that some of the people in the room were out for blood. The summer had been a rough one, with a spate of killings in the city having people on edge all over. This man might not be guilty of murder, but it looked as though several jurors might take out their frustrations on him nonetheless. Juror number two swallowed hard, then said, Okay, lunch is over. Let's get back to deliberating. And that's where we're going to leave it for now. Hmm, okay. Interesting. Yeah, lots of things going on in the big city and in the in the jury room. Hmm. Okay, yeah, I'm very yeah, intrigued. Yeah, more to come, yeah. more to come. Okay. Thank you, thank you. Meanwhile, let's hear what's going on in your day after. Uh, John Holt could still not believe the verdict. He was sure he was going to be found guilty, but after the jury's long deliberation, they returned the verdict he'd hoped to hear. He was not guilty. He was free. John thanked his lawyer, filled in the relevant paperwork, and then after a few hours, he was free and back on the streets. Now he sat alone in the small house he'd grown up in. He tried to stay out of the kitchen as the blood stain on the floor was still there. He was free. He was all alone. He had no idea what he was going to do now. And that's my day after. I like it. I like it. Following uh, following the accused. Yes. Very yes, interesting. Yes. But uh, that's that's my, what's going on with your immediate aftermath and these, uh, with this new jury. Okay. Well, outside the jury room, life went on as normal. Or as normal as it could, anyway. Defense attorney Henry Savoka sat in a meeting room with his client, one Clyde Dozier. Savoka doesn't like the man. He's a drunk, he has severely questionable opinions about women, and Savoka would definitely not care to socialize with them. In fact, the only reason he got the case was because he was the lowest man on the totem pole at the firm of Fonda, Lumet, and Rose. <laughs> having, having just nice. joined the firm, thank you, having just joined the firm after leaving the public defender's office, this was only the second case he'd tried for the prestigious firm, but he was determined to do his best. Despite all of his opinions about the accused man, he was also strongly convinced that he was innocent of the murder and he hoped the jury would agree with him. Several hours later, a bailiff sticks his head in the room. Jury's back, he says. Savoka swallows hard, then stands up with his client and heads back into the courtroom. And that's where we're going to leave it for now. There is mm. definitely more to come, though. Oh, I like it. I like it. Thank mm. you. Thank you. I'm trying to build some of the same tension yeah, that well, was in the movie. I'm feeling it. I've got no idea what's going to go. I like it. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Oh, cool. All right. Well, meanwhile, let's find out what's going on with, uh, your, uh, your, with the accused. Okay. So we're... John was working hard. He'd taken on three jobs. A waiter, delivery man, and working in the mailroom at a small magazine. He decided to make the most of his second chance and was making money to go back to school. He was going to become a better person. He knew it would be difficult, and there'd been run-ins with local gangsters, but he kept his head down, and he worked hard. That's my immediate aftermath. All right. I like it. Thank I like you. where we're going. Yes, that's, uh, yeah, that's, I'm sticking with John for mine, but uh, what's going on with yours? 
All right, well, Mr. Foreman, the judge intones, have you reached a verdict? We have, your honor, says juror number two. And how do you find, asks the judge. We, the jury, find the defendant, Clyde Dozier, not guilty on the charge of murder in the first degree. Dozier sinks into his chair, and Savoka can barely keep himself from cheering out loud. Dozier shakes Savoka's hand and thanks him. You never stop believing in me, Dozier says. Why? It wasn't you I believed in, Savoka says. It was the system. I knew it wouldn't let me down. How'd you know that, Dozier asks. Because I was you once. Twenty years ago, I sat in that seat as an 18-year-old man accused of murdering my father. And the juror saw the truth and found me innocent. Two weeks later, the real murderer confessed. It was that experience that drove me to go to law school. And that's why I was determined to defend you to the best of my ability and trust in the system. Savoka makes his way to the back of the courtroom where an elderly man sits. You did good, kid, the man says. I never get tired of watching you. Thanks, Mr. Davis, replies Savoka. I wouldn't be here without you. It wasn't me, Davis says. It was the truth. Now come on, let's get lunch and celebrate. And with that, the two friends walk out of the courtroom. And that's the end. Uh, very nice, that, Mike. I like that. Like thank you, thank nice you. Indeed. Let's hear how yours wraps up then, because I, I think it's sort of leaning and in, going into the direction where it could tie into my ending. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, you may be right, you may be wrong. <laughs> okay, John could not believe his journey. After years of working many different jobs while going to night school, he'd ended up working in a law firm. He'd worked his way up and had now been a lawyer for the past five years. He dealt mainly with small cases, but he was doing good, solid work. He'd helped many people and had a promising future ahead of him. Every day he thanked his defence lawyer and those 12 jurors who had given him his life back. He still missed his father. And that's my long term. Very nice. Yeah. So yours is like the prequel to my ending. Like our ending is actually like tied in together. Yeah. We just didn't, it didn't even know it. Yeah. It's kind of cool. I like that. I do too. Yeah. So uh, for new listeners, neither Mike or myself know what the other one's done. So this was just a lovely coincidence. That is true. That yeah. is true. I want to point out one little thing, one little one, you know, once in a while you're proud of a little thing you slipped into your ending, right? Yeah. Yeah. I got to point out one thing. So you remember I mentioned there was a spate of killings in the city. Yeah, first, yeah, yeah, yeah. So this takes place 20 years after 12 Angry Men, right? Well, 12 yeah. Angry Men came out in 1957. So that puts my ending in 1977. Do you know what murders were happening in the city in 1977? Son of Sam or something? Yeah, Son of Sam. Oh, it was the summer of Sam. Yes, yes. So see, I did a little like real world research there to tie it all together. Very nice indeed. Yeah, because when you yeah. mentioned the, the space of murders, I was wondering what that was and whether it was going to play in. Oh, just, nice I just mostly I wanted to set the tone that, you know, yeah. people were on edge, but I, I like the fact that I could make it work out. You know, I like when the timelines line up for me. That makes me happy. Very good. And I like the way Henry Fonda's character as well was uh, still his friend. I was good. There. Yeah, I kind of felt like, you know, I mean, obviously in real life, I don't think it's proper for <laughs> jurors and, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, defendants to become friends. But I, I like the idea that maybe he kind of just kept an eye on him from afar, you know, afterwards. And then eventually they became friends kind of, you know, after yeah, the fact. Yeah, yeah. So. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Very nice. All right. So, Phil, I think it's time for 12 angry trivia questions. What do you got for us? Okay, well, Sidney Lumet, he had the actors stay in the same room for hours on end and do their, and had them do their lines over and over without actually filming them. This was to get them used to being stuck in a room together and get, you know, get their anger and things building so they know what it was like. Yeah, that seems to work. Yeah, the whole film... Yeah, no, the, the whole film was shot in a total of 365 separate takes. And as the film starts, uh, the camera's high up in the air and it's wide shots. Uh, but as the film progresses, the camera comes lower and lower... Uh, till it's eye level and then below and it also gets uh, closer and closer and so it's, it makes everything feel more smaller and tighter and more claustrophobic mm. uh, which works quite well uh, all but three minutes of the film was shot inside the 16 by 24 foot jewelry room it was also the directorial debut of Sidney Lumet uh, and it was also the only best picture Oscar nominee that year not to be nominated in any acting category which is which just is crazy crazy yeah because <laughs> it's mainly acting can you imagine though that's your de directorial debut. I mean, your first film is, is 12 Angry Men, which is just, I mean, I think is just one of the greatest films ever. I mean, what a what a way to set the bar. You know? no, I, mean, I mean, obviously he went on to be a very acclaimed director for yeah. good reason, but holy cow. And you've got all these amazing actors. Uh, just, yeah, and it's, it's phenomenal. Yeah, really great stuff. Excellent. All right, great. Well, that's uh, that's Twelve Angry Men. Let's move on then to the Dark Knight Rises. Every must, Mike. <laughs> All right, well, let's just, uh, we'll skip with the pleasantries. We'll get right into telling the story, shall we? Yeah, go on. Hiss is with what could 
possibly be oh i can't i can't raise any excitement for it because i was so disappointed <laughs> in this film okay yeah give us a rundown mike all right well eight years after the death of harvey dent batman has disappeared and crime has been greatly reduced in gotham city with batman having taken the fall as the bad guy for some stupid reason that never made any sense to me <laughs> but sorry that's i'm not i don't i'm not editorializing that was just written here i don't know how that got in there yeah yeah uh we meet catwoman who's selena kyle and uh commissioner gordon is kidnapped and taken to meet bane who's a big crazy crazy bad guy. Gordon escapes and meets Officer John Blake, who's an orphan like Bruce Wayne. He convinces Bruce that Batman needs to come back. Meanwhile, Bane takes over Gotham City and blows up the bridges and keeps everyone trapped. And then Bruce is captured by Bane and thrown into a pit where he learns that Bane may or may not be the child of Ra's al Ghul, who was the villain in the first and best Batman movie, Batman Begins. After a few months, Batman escapes and he beats Bane. His girlfriend, Miranda Tate, reveals herself to be Talia al Ghul, who is Raz's actual daughter. Uh, she activates Bane's nuclear bomb, and Bruce has to fly it out over the ocean in the Batwing. But before he does, he reveals his identity to Gordon. He's presumed dead in the explosion, but a few months later, in, in the only part of the film that I like, uh, Alfred sees Bruce and Selina together, looking happy in a foreign city. Meanwhile, John Blake, whose real first name has been revealed as Robin John Blake, <gasps> oh my God. discovers the Batcave, and that's how the film ends. Yes. Now, I'm not sure, Phil, but it seems like you're not a fan of this film. Am I reading that correctly? Well, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> good God, you're, you're very perceptive about it. I, know, I am. I picked up on just the subtle hints there. Yeah, yeah. No, I like you. I, I really like Batman Begins. I thought it was a great film. Yeah. The, the end, and sort of, it sort of fell apart in the last you know, 10, 20 minutes, but... Uh, I love that the whole. I thought it did. It was a great origin story to finally see how Bruce Wayne became Batman. Uh, the Dark Knights I really enjoyed, but as, as we said before, it's 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 like half an hour too long. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Probably the I would have liked to have seen the whole Two Face thing could have been another uh, the next film. Yes, it should have been for but sure. But I love I love what they did with the joke. It was quite nice and things, but they missed the perfect opportunity to have Superman fly by and say, "Do you need any help?" And Batman to tell him to get lost. But anyway, <laughs> uh, and then the Dark Knight Rises came along, and I remember watching it going. Uh, well, I was quite excited for because Bane, and I thought this, and it looked like they were going to use the whole No Man's Land from the comic book, which was a, a great storyline done very well. Yep, yep. And the whole breaking of the Bat Batman thing, but they just they, they just fumbled it big time, trying to keep everything too realistic. Lots of big plot holes, which uh, loads of dreadful editing, which lots of lots of uh, Christopher Nolan films seem to suffer from. I could go on, but it'd just be like a whole episode of me just going, why, why this, why this, why that? <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, what about you? What? Uh, I mean, I, yeah, I feel largely the same. I mean, I couldn't understand a word Tom Hardy said when I saw it in the theater. And part of that was the mix, but then also his mask. Yeah, the music was voice. too loud in lots of places. Um, but uh, yeah, I just I don't really like the film very much. I I, I honestly I, I found it boring and and tedious and and too dark and just yeah. not very interesting. And Batman is hardly in it. I mean, I think Batman's in this film less than Godzilla is in Godzilla, which is a very small amount. Oh yeah, yeah. but I also didn't like it the way at the end of the Dark Knight, Batman said, "I'm going to be you know I'll be the villain you need to chase again." But why? But uh, that, yeah, that never made sense to me. I never understood that. Yeah. I never liked that. I never I never cared for that decision. But then we find out you know the Dark Knight rises though. He just disappeared for eight years, so he went back yeah, on everything right. he told him, and he just right. became a hermit. And then after yeah. after getting a fancy knee brace, suddenly he can do all the Batman stuff again. What? Right, right. <sighs> the only thing I like about this movie really is the last five to ten minutes, which is where you know Alfred sees Bruce and Selina. You know, I think they're in Paris, maybe, but wherever they are, they're they're you know they're happy together. And Bruce has you know because there's a whole conversation where Alfred says he has a dream about someday he'll see Bruce and he'll be happy. And, you know, and then at the end, he sees that. And then, of course, you know, Robin discovers the Batcave. I love that part of the film. And if I mean, it's I know it's only five minutes, but I love that. Yeah, that to me kind of I, I like to tack that on after the first two films. And I feel like it makes a nice end cap for it. I know some people have, have you know, posited that it's all just a dream, uh, you know, that Alfred's having a dream and that Bruce is really dead because he blew up at the bomb. But, you know, I'm a happy ending guy. So uh, and obviously that would make my after the endings a lot less interesting maybe so um but we'll see mm -hmm. maybe you're going that way i don't know i don't want to say yeah i don't think you're gonna like my end then mike <laughs> all right that's fair <laughs> well let's uh well let's hear it then why don't you go ahead and get us started give us your day after okay my day after alfred blinked and the daydream ended mm. he kept hoping bruce would turn up one day but after the explosion there'd been no word from him selena had eventually headed off to who knows where alfred was now comfortably well off and he'd been traveling around europe and he kept up with the, the news of gotham being slowly rebuilt maybe he would return one day Bruce woke up. He was in what seemed to be a glass coffin. He panicked for a moment, then calmed as it slowly opened. Sitting up, he felt strangely well. 
The many aches and pains he'd been feeling over the past few years had gone. Looking around, he found he was in a large room that seemed to be composed of strange crystals. A noise to his left drew his attention. He turned and saw a large, well-built man with jet black hair enter the room. The newcomer was carrying a tray of food. Ah, good, you're awake, said the man. I've got some food for you. Where, where am I, asked Bruce. This is my home, said the man. My name is Kal-El, and I saved you from the explosion. You've spent the past few months in a regeneration cell to purge the radiation from your body. Bruce nodded as he began to eat the food. So you're that Superman I heard about in Metropolis. Why did you save me? You're a good man, said Kal-El, and I needed your help. I've been monitoring a strange signal that seems to be coming from a different dimension. Okay, said Bruce. Interesting. <laughs> but, how, but how can I help with that? Who sent the signal? You did, said Kal-El. Oh, I like that. Thank you very much. Very that's, cool. That's my day after, but what's going on with yours? Uh, well, let's see. Uh, I'm happy to say that I think we're going in pretty different directions here, but uh, let's see what's going on. So, Excellent. It is a black and moonless night in Gotham City. A group of four men walk down the street, glancing around nervously. They stop in front of a jewelry store, look around again, then smash in the large front window of the store with a rock. As an alarm blares, three of the men fill burlap sacks with as much jewelry as they can fit, while the fourth man watches the second hand on his watch. Finally, he yells out, 90 seconds, let's go! Like clockwork, the four men drop everything not already in their sacks and take off running. They turn down an alley, hop into a waiting getaway car, and speed off. As they race away, the flashing police lights in their rearview mirror are just pulling up to the jewelry store, unaware that the criminals are long gone. Eighteen minutes later, a pair of eyes watches the police work the crime scene from a nearby rooftop. Damn it, John Blake thinks to himself. I was too late again. There's got to be a way to get to these crimes while they're happening, not after. He watches for a little while longer, then he turns with a swoosh of his cape and cowl and returns to the Batcave. Meanwhile, in Paris, Bruce and Selina live a carefree life, taking in tourist sights, eating sumptuous meals, and continuing their whirlwind romance. One evening, however, Bruce gets a phone call. It's Alfred. I'm afraid he needs your help, sir, says the butler solemnly. And that's where we're going to leave it for now. Oh, nice. Thank you. Thank you. Just, just when he thought he got out. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll see. I like it. Thank you. All right. Well, I want to hear about this uh, other dimensional Bruce. I'm, I'm digging what I'm hearing so far. So give, give me some more. Okay. Bruce felt better than he had in a long time. The regeneration pod had rejuvenated his body, but Kal-El did warn him that it may have reduced his lifespan by a few years. Together, the Dark Knight detective and the last son of Krypton had managed to speak to the other Bruce Wayne. This new Bruce explained that he was located in another of the 52 known dimensions. <laughs> He'd been monitoring a strange phenomenon that had been leeching the life force from, other, from these other dimensions. This new Bruce explained a little of his backstory and how a gangster called Jack Napier had become the Joker. He also explained that his Superman was still recovering from a battle with an entity called Nuclear Man. <laughs> they all agreed that they needed to somehow meet face to face, but had no idea how. As they were trying to think of something, Bruce and Kal-El were suddenly interrupted by a, a loud booming sound. They turned and saw a man dressed all in red who seemed to be surrounded by crackling lightning. Hi everyone, said the stranger. I'm the Flash and I'm the fastest man alive. Kal-El looked at Bruce. You need to come with me, said the Flash. Harrison Wells and Cisco have got a plan. <laughs> and that's my immediate aftermath. I like it. <clears throat> Just bringing them in from all different universes now. That's what that's what DC need to do. But anyway, <laughs> uh, sorry, Warner Brothers need to do. But right. uh, that's that's my what's going on there with yours. Is Bruce going to heed Alfred's call? Well, we shall see. Blake goes to the ATM to pull out $20 for lunch. As he punches in his PIN number, he waits to see whether or not he'll be overdrawn again. As the numbers flash on the screen, Blake almost drops his wallet in shock. There are over seven zeros following the 12 on the screen. Just then, his beeper buzzes on his belt. Blake looks down and sees a message on the LED screen. This should help. See Lucius. B. Two months later, the heist gang are hitting up another jewelry store. Just as the man with the watch is about to yell, 90 seconds, let's go, Batman swoops in and knocks him down. The other men look on in shock. This is the first time in 14 jobs that they've encountered any resistance. They pull their guns, but before one of them can even get a shot off, Batman has disarmed them all. In seconds, they're all unconscious and trussed up for the police. Later that night, returning to the cave, Blake calls Lucius Fox. It worked like a charm, Lucius. The alert network, coupled with the Batmobile, really cut down on my travel time. Being in the city and ready for a call makes all the difference versus coming in from the cave. Back in Paris, Bruce receives another phone call from Alfred. After a few moments, he hangs up. He turns to Selina, who's getting ready for dinner, and says... Looks like I made the right choice. And that's the immediate aftermath. Oh, very good. Thank you. Thank you. I like it. Thanks. So, all right. Well, your, yours is a little more, uh, you know, action-packed and bombastic than mine. So let's hear how this is all wrapping up. I'm sensing some some big fireworks here. 
Okay, well, let's see. Uh, Bruce was amazed at how far he had come since his fight with Bane and the explosion in Gotham Bay. Both he and Kal-El had been stunned to meet the other versions of themselves from a number of different dimensions. One Batman was an actual vampire. One kept dancing and commiserating about how difficult it was to get rid of a bomb. <laughs> another seemed to be a living cartoon, while another, while another had ice skates hidden in his boots, but they didn't really <laughs> talk to him. <laughs> Cisco and Harrison Wells had explained that there was some kind of force or entity that was traveling from dimension to dimension and devouring uh, the life of each Earth. It's all kind of galactic,y said Cisco. Any time, any minute now, I expect a guy on a silver surfboard to show up. <laughs> the various Batman, Superman, Flashes, and other heroes and legends just stared at him. Gee, said Cisco, has no one ever read a Marvel comic? <laughs> Before he could continue, there was a blinding flash of light, and a trio of newcomers, two men and a woman, had appeared. One was an older Superman whose S on his chest had a black background. Mm. The other was an elderly Bruce Wayne who seemed to rely on an exoskeleton to move. And the woman was a tall-built Amazonian who wore golden armor. Mm -hmm. Good, you all here, said the elderly Bruce Wayne. Things are much, much worse than you think. And that's my long term. <laughs> I like it. A little Kingdom Come action at the end there, maybe? Yes, definitely. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. You know, I like what I like about that ending, Phil, is that people who don't read comics at all will still be able to follow all of it. But people who do read comics get a nice little few Easter eggs in there, which I, which I appreciate. Yes, that's, that's what I was going for. But I just, yeah, I just... I do think DC and Warner Brothers need to embrace the uh, the multiverse. Like, but anyway, go and hit me with it. What's going on with uh, your long term and Blake and Bruce and Alfred and everyone? All right. Well, several months later, Bruce and Selina are enjoying a leisurely breakfast on the French Riviera. Bruce opens the Gotham City newspaper he has flown in every morning to check on his financials. It wasn't easy recovering from Bane's cyber attack that left the Wayne Corporation in ruins, but thanks to some help from Lucius Fox and Bruce's rich friend Oliver Queen, the company had recovered and Bruce was a billionaire again. He was able to funnel a large portion to Blake in order to finance his mission as Batman. As he flipped the pages, he saw yet another story about a crime that had been thwarted by Batman, and he smiled to himself. Do you ever miss it? Selina asks. You know, being him. Bruce looks at Selina for a long time, takes a deep breath, and falls silent. Then he finally says, Honestly, I thought I would, but I don't. I gave everything I had to the mission. For years, I felt like I would never be able to honor my parents. But the months I spent in that dungeon made me realize that my parents would be proud of me, that I helped Gotham, and now, especially now, I know that Gotham is in good hands. So no, I don't miss it. I can still do good as Bruce Wayne, and that's easier than ever with you by my side. Selina smiles and kisses Bruce, then takes him by the hand and leads him to the bedroom. The newspaper falls to the floor, and Bruce doesn't notice the small item on the corner of the front page. The headline reads, Mystery in Metropolis, plane lands safely with no landing gear. <laughs> And that's the end. Very good. Oh, I really like that. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks. I, I as as I mentioned earlier, I love the last five minutes of this movie. So I based my entire ending off of that five minutes. You know what I mean? That's really all I wanted to follow up on was Bruce and Selena being happy and and you know John Blake being becoming Batman. Yeah. Very good. Thanks. And, thanks. and I like the Likewise. little bit, the little nod to Superman at the end. Yeah, I thought it'd be fun just to throw something else in there, you know? Yeah. But no, I really like your ending. Very, very Thanks. Good. Likewise. I enjoyed yeah. yours greatly. All right. Well, there you go. So is it time for the dark trivia to rise, Phil? <laughs> very good, Mark. <laughs> oh, thank you, Phil. Phil doesn't seem too happy about that, though. <laughs> yes. There's okay. also a little bit of Marvin the Martian creeping in. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I can't, I can't, sometimes I can do Marvin really well, but... Uh, Today is not that day. Well, just try and do Bane and, and say things that Marvin would say. Maybe it'll work out perfectly. Oh, Plutonium 920. <laughs> Where's that rabbit? Okay. <clears throat> Where's that rabbit? I see him, Marvin. Where is he? <laughs> oh, God. That's like the most horrifying conversation ever between Tom Hardy's Bane and Marvin the Martian. It could get worse, Mike. <laughs> 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 <clears throat> okay, so Tom Hardy, he's uh, he's five foot nine in real life, which means I'm taller than Tom Hardy. Wow! By two inches, and you'll be a little bit taller than that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so making the film, he had to wear three inch lifts to make Bane appear as tall or taller than his co-stars. Interesting. What I would have done is I just would have like cut off, uh, you know, part of the <laughs> co-stars do it that way. Right, cut them off at the ankles. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. They, can, like they that. can hobble around just fine. Yeah. Uh, the handheld walkie-talk is used by the police, featuring an old DC comic book logo. Yeah, that's fun. Which I quite, I quite like that bit. Uh, each film in the Dark Knight trilogy is 12 minutes longer than the previous one, hmm. which means The Dark Knight Rises is 164 minutes. Or 24 minutes too long. Yes, 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 <laughs> yes. 
Uh, the bat suit in this one consisted of 110 separate pieces, which means that once again, Christian Bale's Batman could turn his head. Right. Uh, the, well, uh, there you go. Yeah, but the film could have been much, much longer because the first draft of the script was 400 pages long, yeah, and, and the usual, and the usual going rate for you know a page of of script in a film is usually you know averages about a minute long. So we dodged the bullet with that one. At what point do you think the screenwriter doing the first draft didn't get to about page 250 and go, maybe I should start wrapping this up? Yeah. Yeah. No, I think I'll give it another 150 pages. 400 pages is a bit much. That's ridiculous. Mm. Uh, and Anne Hathaway based her performance on Hedy Lamar. I said Hedy, uh, who was the original. Uh, Hedy Lamar was the original inspiration for Catwoman in the comics. There you go. And that's the Dark Knight Rises. And my own little trivia, because apparently all I'm doing is tooting my own horn today. The reason <laughs> I had John Blake look at his beeper as opposed to his cell phone is because they always try and keep the time periods a little bit uh, fluid in the Batman films. You yes, know how they always yeah, kind of, yeah. so you never know exactly when they take place. So I try to do the same thing in keeping with that and have him use a beeper instead of a cell phone. They do the same thing in Gotham, the TV show. Right, right. Which exactly. therefore means that Gotham is actually a prequel to the Nolanverse. There oh you my go, God, see? it all makes sense. <laughs> all right, well, there you go. So those are our endings for 12 Angry Men and The Dark Knight Rises, one of which is a much better film than the other. Uh, I'll let you figure out which oh, yeah. one we We're think We're not going to say which one. It's, it's up no, to the, we don't want to make Tom Hardy man. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, but already am I. <laughs> thank God. Thank God we finished that. So yeah, Tom, you can go now. Yes. Thank you for your participation, Tom. We appreciate enough, it. Enough we'll, of the method. We'll oh, see thank you. you very much. <laughs> that was very nice of him to stop by. <laughs> and filled the foley artist. Strikes again. You got filled. <laughs> All right. Try so. to fish. <laughs> That's uh, that's our endings. Let's move on then to 100 Years of Hollywood and 100 Episodes, wherein we take a year from the past century of Hollywood and we share our top 10 favorite films. But as we mentioned earlier, we've already done all of the years of the past century of Hollywood. So now we are going back and revisiting the films that we missed. So this is the 1990s, and these are the top 10 films that we either couldn't fit on our list the first time around or that we have discovered since we did the lists and have watched more recently for the first time. 1990s, lots of fun. Yes, yes, yes. Lots of uh, lots of good films, lots of films we missed. It was a tough one to narrow it down because there was lots of other good films, which some of them I thought I'd actually included on those years, but they'd obviously been beaten out by other films. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I think this is what's fun for me is I got a chance to like include some 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 guilty pleasures and films that maybe aren't the greatest movies in the world, but just movies that I like. So that it was hard to justify fitting them on a proper ten top ten list, but yeah, they yeah. fit in perfectly here, you know. Okay, then Mike, do you wanna do you wanna get things started? Uh yeah, absolutely. So my number ten is a tie between two films that I really like, uh, which sort of embody that whole thing I was just talking about a minute ago about films that maybe aren't the best films in the world, but that I have a soft spot for. They are both thrillers, and they are Guilty as Sin from 1993 and FX2 from 1991. Now, Guilty as Sin, interestingly enough, was directed by Sidney Lumet. Oh, okay. Yeah, so that was not done on purpose. But uh, it stars uh, Don Johnson and Rebecca Dormornay, and it's kind of a thriller about a guy who is clearly guilty, and she has to decide what to do about that. Uh, it's it's a fun, just a, a really great, like, 90s-style thriller. Um, you know, it's yeah. nothing groundbreaking, but I always really enjoyed it. And uh, I think, you know, Sidney Lumet adds a little, you know, elevates it a little bit. Uh, and then FX2 is the sequel to FX. Uh, it stars Brian Brown and Brian Dennehy. Uh, he play, Brian Brown plays a special effects expert. In this film, he uses his special effects wizardry to help catch a serial killer. So kind of a neat uh, mix of genres there. Uh, those are two thrillers that I enjoy. Guilty cool. of Sin and FX2. I've never seen Guilty of Sin. Oh, it's uh, really fun. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. And Don Johnson's great in it. Oh, no, good, good pick for your number 10. Thank you. Okay, my, my number 10 is uh, Austin Powers, International Man of Mystery. Very good. It's the first the first one, obviously, with uh, Mike Myers. Not the one from Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I just love the whole fact it took the old the old 1960s spy, brought it forward, and the whole thing. Just I thought it was absolutely hilarious. Great performance by Mike Myers as both Austin Powers and Dr. Evil. Uh, lovely supporting cast, some really funny moments, which is still quite quite funny it's still i watched it what was it last year and it still made me laugh an awful lot yeah I, I think it's a great film i'm surprised it wasn't on your list the first time but uh you know yeah i thought it would have been but obviously not this oh yeah it was from 19 i didn't say the year did i it was from 1997 there you go all right well my number nine is uh also a tie um but that is because i keep finding you know themes for these movies and this is between two action films uh both of which are not 
great films, but boy, I really enjoy them anyway. Uh, yeah. They are No Escape from 1994 and The Taking of Beverly Hills from 1991. Uh, I'll get to that one in a minute. No Escape was uh, with Ray Liotta, and he it's like sort of like in the future, and these prisoners are sent to this like island, and they like oh, build a society. Oh yeah, yeah. I couldn't think. What, yeah, I know the one. Yeah, that, yeah I, I, I really enjoyed that one. I, I love that it. movie. Yeah. I, it has, probably hasn't aged well, and it wasn't a big hit. Uh, but I just I, I saw it in theaters twice because I enjoyed it so much. I have a real soft spot for those, you know, dystopic future type of movies anyway, but this is just one I enjoyed the heck out of. It's, you know, I don't really believe in guilty pleasures, but if if I did, this would certainly qualify as one of them. Uh, And then The Taking of Beverly Hills is an interesting one. I'd never actually heard of this movie until recently when it came out on Blu-ray from one of those boutique companies. And it stars Ken Wall, who was in the TV show Wise Guy which is one of my favorite TV shows ever, and I'm a big fan of his. Uh, He didn't do a lot of stuff outside of that, um, but this is a movie he made in 1991, and it's very clearly trying to capitalize on the whole diehard, you know, craze of the late 80s and early 90s. And basically it's like this like football player who gets trapped. They, they These bad guys cut off Beverly Hills to rob people and they like evacuate the city of Beverly Hills and sort of like cut it off from the outside. And he's this football player and he basically has to take out all these bad guys who are armed, you know, with guns and tanks and all this stuff. And it's I mean, it's really silly and over the top but it's a lot of fun and it's actually like in the vein of like a diehard type movie in that sort of 80s okay, 90s yeah. action thriller it, it's really enjoyable i have to say it holds up pretty well if you just go along for the ride and uh it's called the taking of beverly hills it's worth tracking down it's a fun little cult classic yeah i thought i don't think i've even heard of it like you said i, I hadn't either yeah so okay yeah i'll definitely have to check that one out okay so my number nine is uh, f- uh from 1998 it's fear and loathing in las vegas this uh Terry Gilliam's adaptation of the Hunter S. Thompson's novel of the same name. Uh, this one stars Johnny Depp as the main character and Benicio Del Toro's in it, as well as lots of other actors. It's basically about a, a reporter who goes to Las Vegas and has lots and lots of drugs. And that's basically it. <laughs> right. But I but I, uh, I really I, I like Terry Gilliam's style. I like I think he was the perfect choice to make this film because he he can blend the fantastical with the the mundane reality of life in a great way. And when the, the characters are taking the drugs and it expands their minds and the way they look, it, it just changes bits. Even if it's just simple things like looking at the the garish patterns on the, the carpets and the, the Las Vegas casinos, which suddenly start moving slightly to seeing bats flying in over Barstow. And then, but uh, yeah, I really like it. The story is a bit nebulous, but... Uh, I enjoyed the novel. I enjoyed the film, and it's my number nine. All right, good pick. I hate that movie, so we'll just move right along. Yeah, I thought you thought you did. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. My number eight is The Bodyguard from 1992, which stars Kevin Costner and Whitney Houston. Oh, you know, you know um, what, Mike? You know what, Mike? What? I'll always love you. <laughs> oh, I will always love you too. Phil. He's back. Oh, I just when you thought he'd come. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't resist. <laughs> yeah, you know, I it's it's uh you know it's it's a, it's an action romance film. It's a very early '90s kind of movie, but it's a good film. I always enjoyed it. I liked it a lot when it came out. It was a big hit. You know, Kevin Costner's great. Whitney Houston does a perfectly fine job in the lead role. You know, the co-lead role, and it's just a really good kind of you know bodyguard falls in love with the girl, but also has to protect her from the bad stuff. And you know, it's got action. It's got romance. You know, it's just it, it's a well put together film that delivers exactly what it promises. And sometimes that's all I want. So that's my number exactly. eight, The Bodyguard. Well said. Pretty well simple. Said, I like that. Yeah, I quite like the film. It's because you hear about it and you just think, oh, it's just a romance. But you know, there are you know, it's got it's a thriller. Yeah, yeah, exactly. With, with, with romantic elements in it. Right. But no, good choice. My number eight is from 1999. It's a Man on the Moon, uh, which is all about the late comedian. Well, he was funny in places, Andy Kaufman, and it stars Jim Carrey as Kaufman, and uh, directed by Miles Foreman, and. If you've seen, there's a, doc, a documentary recently hit uh, Netflix as well, which was about the making of this and showed that Jim Carrey stayed in character the whole time. And he says he was possessed by the spirit of Andy. But anyway, I didn't know yeah. much about Andy Kaufman about him seeing him on when he was in the, the taxi sitcom, the comedy show from years ago. Mm-hmm. So I didn't really know much about him. But then when the film was coming out, there was like little bits, you know, more bits coming out and I was learning about him. Lots of the stuff I didn't find funny in the slightest, but I was very intrigued. I'm always intrigued by stand-up comedians and comedy in general and how people actually do that. So... I I watched the film and I thought it was absolutely fascinating. Jim Carrey's performance, astounding, especially when you, real, you do see bits of Andy Kaufman and realise how close it was. 
I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a great film. Yeah, good choice. I, you know, I don't, I don't like or dislike the film, to be honest. I mean, I, I mean, I, I guess I lean towards the side of liking it. I, I think it's an interesting movie, but it's not a, a favorite of mine. But you know, I, yeah, I did yeah. find it interesting. So, all right. Well, my number seven is the first comedy on my list. It is Father of the Bride from 1991, starring Steve Martin and Martin Short. Uh, and it's just a funny movie. Uh, I, I really enjoy it. You know, it's got a, a great all-around cast, great supporting characters. I love Steve Martin. You know, it's funny. It's it's well-written with snappy dialogue. Martin Short has that character, Frank, that's really funny. Um, and oh, it's yeah, just kind yeah. of a good, you know, it's just a good, like, all-around kind of almost like a screwball comedy. You know, it's got some a little bit of romance in it, but it's not like a romantic comedy, you know, and it's just more about kind of this, the, the, you know, more about the dad. And, you know, it's just a kind of a feel-good film, if you will. You know, everything goes wrong, and then at the end, everything goes right. And by the end of it, you're smiling and you're laughing the whole way through. So what more can you ask for? Oh, most definitely. Yeah. Wasn't it a remake of uh, a Spencer Tracy comedy? Oh, my yes, it was. Yep. Yeah, yep. yeah. But no, I, 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 I did like that one. I always like Steve Martin. And Martin Short when he's in, it's very good. But my number seven is a film by uh, John Sayles. It's uh, Lone Star from 1996. Uh, stars Chris Cooper, Chris Christopherson, and Matthew McConaughey. And other people it's it's like a it's it's set it was set in the 90s but it has flashbacks to we're following the sheriff uh played by uh chris cooper and he's investigating uh, goings on and his dad was this this legendary sheriff who's played by matthew mcconaughey so there's flashbacks to his dad but he's invest present day sam as sheriff sam is investigating goings on uh, but it has ties in with something that his dad was doing and you find out that he didn't get on with his dad as well as people thought but it's it's more like it's like a it's like a western uh like a mystery kind of thriller you're not sure where it's going and when you find out there's a few revelations that change the way you, you look at things but it's 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 another one I've not seen in a long time and I really must go back and revisit it very cool well my number six is another tie uh, between two animated films that came out in the same year, and as okay. so often happens, they were they were uh, dueling films about almost the exact same thing. Yeah, they are from 1998, Ants, and Mulan, because uh, Bugs Life is crap. Um, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, not about exactly about the exact same thing, but uh, both films I really enjoy. I always thought Ants was the better Bug movie by far. I mean, I'm not even a big Woody Allen fan, but Woody Allen playing a neurotic ant. With Sylvester Stallone as his, you know, as his friend, it is funny. It's a funny movie. It's a much more interesting plot than A Bug's Life is, and I know everyone loves A Bug's Life. I never really cared for that movie all that much. It's a, it's a perfect example of Pixar's overratedness. But um, <laughs> I, uh, I wanted to get ants on the list because I really enjoyed it. Uh, and then Cars Mars... is not a good movie, Mark. <laughs> you shut up, Tom Hardy. Cars is the best Pixar movie. <laughs> Uh, I'll kick your ass. I don't care if you are Bane or Venom. He's only anyway. five foot nine, Mike. That's you know. right. I got four inches on him. There you go. No, wait. I got wait five foot nine three. I got five inches on him. There you go. Unless he cuts your feet off, and then you well, know. there you go. <laughs> anyway, um, and Mulan is just one of those ones that you know I don't uh, I I I you know because the '90s were so jam packed with great movies, and this was kind of after the Disney triumvirate of you know Aladdin, Lion King, and uh, Beauty and the Beast. I don't know that it made my list originally because it, it was never like one of my favorite, favorite Disney films, but it is actually a very good Disney film. Uh, it's got some great action scenes, got some good songs. Uh, we recently spoke about how great Eddie Murphy is in this film. So uh, it's a good one. And I always like to represent Disney on my list if I can fit them in. So so that's my number six, Ants and Mulan. Excellent choice. I do like both of them. Yeah, as you say, Ants is very underrated. Yeah, uh, I think it is. Good choices. Okay, my number six is uh, from 1992. And it's from uh, a good friend of mine who I met recently in New York. It's uh, by Robert Rodriguez. <laughs> I interviewed, I spoke to him okay. He's not my friend. But uh, I'm sure he would be if I spent more time with him. That's but, right. Uh, yeah, it's 1992's El Mariachi. This was uh, what put Robert Rodriguez on the map. It's the one he did with a tiny budget. $7,225 to make it, I think, which is crazy. But it's following a guy who's a mariachi musician who goes into this town, ends up getting mistaken to be a hitman. Things go wrong. Uh, it was remade as Desperado, but the the original is still a, it's still a great film. It's low budget, but where it's the way it was shot and where it was, it's great. It just shows you don't need much money. You just need people who want to make a film, and well, a camera as well. You need a camera. That's always useful. Maybe some sound equipment. Oh, yeah, you need a bit of budget. But anyway, it was just great. But this uh, that was my number six. 
Very good choice. All right. So my number five then, moving right along, is Carlito's Way from 1993, starring Al Pacino and Sean Penn, directed by Brian De Palma, uh, who obviously can be very love it or hate it, but this is one of my love it's. And it just got squeaked out of my list the first time we did when we did 1993. But this is one of those films that I really enjoy, and I think I liked it more than I realized I did at the time. I didn't see it for a long time. I never saw it back in the 90s. I saw it maybe... I don't know, five or ten years ago. <laughs> it is one of Al Pacino's better performances, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and it's 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 a very much it's about a gangster who gets out of prison and is trying to go straight, but then he kind of gets sucked back into the life. Uh, and it's it's really well done, and it's good to Palma, which is always enjoyable for me. Um, so I, I like this film a lot. I think it's really worth a watch, and it's kind of I think one of the more underseen films of. Pacino and De Palma's careers. So worth tracking down if you haven't seen it. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah. I think I made. I think it was in my top five. I believe it was. I remember it being on your list, and I remember kind of saying, oh, I kind of wish I had it on mine. Yeah, and every every time I watch it, I'm always going, maybe this time, maybe this time we'll get out. (laughs) Right, right, exactly. Exactly. And that's always the mark of a good movie, though, when you're rooting for something to happen that you know isn't going to happen. Yeah. yeah. That, to me, says, you know, hey, this is a good film. Mm. But, yeah, Uh, I'm glad glad you finally got on one of your lists, Mike. Good good choice. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Okay, my number five is from 1999. It's uh, by... Written and directed by Alexander Payne, it's Election. This one is all about a school election. It stars Matthew Broderick as a teacher and uh, Reese Witherspoon's playing one of his pupils. And it's, uh, it starts off as a comedy and it is quite funny. Uh, then it becomes a dark comedy. Then it becomes really, really dark. And I didn't expect it to be quite as dark as it was. And it's you don't really like lots of the people in it, which is hard sometimes watching a film when you don't like the main characters. But... Uh, I, I just thought it was, this was good, well acted. Reese Witherspoon's character, at the point you're just going, oh my God, I hate her, I hate her. And other times you're going, oh, I feel sorry for her. Just watch it. It's worth uh, seeing if you like those people and you want to see a high school comedy drama that goes to a few dark places. Uh, Phil, I have, to, I have to go because uh, you put election on one of your top 10 lists and now we can't be on the podcast together anymore. <laughs> Yeah, I I really hate that movie, actually. So moving right along once again. I can't um, see why people would hate it, though. Yeah, I I don't I don't care for it at all. Uh, My number four is my last tie for the evening. Uh, It is two action films, hard action films, um, both of which I've taken another look at recently and enjoyed much more than I did the first times. They are Eraser from 1996 and Hard Rain from 1998. Uh, I know I have some critic friends who think that Hard Rain is an underrated classic. And after watching it again, I have to say it is a pretty underrated film. It's a great 90s style action film with Christian Slater and Morgan Freeman and it takes place during a flood Uh, many drivers in there too about these guys robbing an armored car during a flood and then of course Christian Slater kind of it's kind of you know it's die hard in a flood I mean but it's really good it's very well shot very well made Um, you know the 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 flood effects are really good there's some really impressive action sequences that take place in like flooded locations and with fires and stuff like that Um, and then Eraser with Arnold Schwarzenegger and uh, Vanessa Williams yeah, I remember seeing it when it came out, and this is sort of in the, the come down period for Arnold, where it was after yeah, he had a, yeah. a string of hits, and this was sort of one of those first films that was kind of like, oh, well, that wasn't as good as his other stuff, his Terminator movies and Kindergarten Cop and all that stuff. But I watched it actually a couple weeks ago just because I wanted something to put on that was kind of action-y. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I really enjoyed it. I, th- I had a lot of fun with it. I was like, this movie is way better than I, I, I remember. I think that just all comes down to expectations, you know, back in the 90s when you were waiting for Arnold Schwarzenegger for his next film to just be you know, the most amazing blockbuster ever, and it wasn't, you were disappointed. But watching it now, I was like, oh, this is a really fun action movie, and I always like a good Arnold flick. So so there you go. Eraser and Hard Rain, both worth a watch. Yeah, I really like Hard Rain. And Eraser, I hadn't seen that for a long time. Like you when I first saw it, I was just going, oh, it's, it's rubbish. But yeah. then, again, it was, I think it was on one of the, the, the streaming channels. I think yeah, it was the, yeah. Near, near the start, early this year. I really enjoyed it, yeah. It yeah, was, it's, a, uh, it's a fun film. It's better yeah. than it was back in the 90s. But uh, yes, some great scenes. And I, I really like the character that uh, Arnie was playing. It wasn't I his, did too. Yeah, it wasn't his normal kind of character. And right. I kind of wanted to know more about his backstory. Yeah, I know. I wish I, they would like have done that. more with that. You know, or maybe, yeah. maybe I wish I'd done well enough for a sequel because it, it certainly could have been ripe for a, a, a franchise. Yeah, God, if only we, we knew somebody who could like do us, you know, talk about a sequel to it, you know, <laughs> see what happened after that finished. <laughs> My number four is from 1990, and it was written and directed by John Waters, and it's Cry Baby. Mm. Uh, this one's got uh, Johnny Depp. Iggy Pop, Ricky Lake, Tracy Lords, lots of other people. Johnny Depp plays like a teen kind of rebel with, you know, the slick back hair. Uh, and it's just about him and his gang of delinquents and he falls in love with a, a straight-laced girl. He tries to come together, a bit like Romeo and Juliet, but not. 
But it's John Waters, so it's rude, crude. I, I always like John Waters films. I really like this one because it's it's just crazy. All right. Well, um, I hate that movie. So moving right along. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, sometimes we're in sync, Phil, but this is definitely not one of those. Yeah. Oh, well, I know, I know John Waters films can be... Uh, Terrible? Yeah. Awful? Ridiculous? Over the top? Yeah, I, I'm sorry. I, which one are you searching for? No, no. I think uh, <laughs> John Waters films, you either love them or you hate them. Right. Exactly. And I don't love them. So, all right, my number three then. Uh, this is a fun one actually that I, I rediscovered and I liked it so much more than I expected to. It is from 1992 and it is Memoirs of an Invisible Man by John, by John Carpenter, starring Chevy Chase. Yeah, I, I like that film. I remember seeing it in the 90s and I, I don't remember even whether I liked it or not. And uh, they put it out on Blu ray a few months ago and I was like, oh, I'm, I'm always up for rewatching a John Carpenter film. And I loved it actually. I have to say, I think it's a really really fun film it has a lot of comedy in it but it isn't a comedy per se it is more of a yeah yeah it's kind of a suspense comedy sci-fi thriller thing um that's but, that's a good way of describing it actually. yeah but it's really good some of the special effects are still really fun and hold up really well i like the way the film has kind of a daring ending um i think the characters are great chevy chase really does a great job in the lead role and he, he plays the character well it's it's a shame the film wasn't a hit it, it kind of bombed but um i think it holds up extremely well way better than i expected it to i have to be honest but i really liked it and it's worth a rewatch if if you have forgotten about it or just dismissed it yeah it's one of those ones i i enjoyed it when i first saw it right Cool. I'll definitely watch that again. Yeah. Excellent. My number three is, I thought I could have sworn this was on my actual list from 1994, but it wasn't. But it is Speed. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. John John the Bont, uh, Keanu Reeves, Dennis Hopper, Sandra Bullock. Uh, and there's a bus, and it's a bus that goes really, really fast. And if it stops going really, really fast, it's going to blow up. Oh, pop quiz, hot shot. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's just getting out of control now. Brilliant. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, no, and it's uh, this. It's a damn fine thriller, action it thriller. Is. Yeah, as I said, I don't know why it must have been pushed out. There must be lots of other good films. It, I think ninety four was a really good year for movies, is what yeah. it was. Yeah. I know it made my list, but I think there was definitely movies that year that you know just you couldn't fit them all in. Yeah, yeah, but it's just it's like a high concept, simple concept, high simple concept. Yeah. yeah anyway, it's one of those ones, and it's but it just does it really well. And then they get off the bus, and then it's on a train, and you go, ah, <laughs> yep. And then they made Speed 2 on a goddamn cruise ship. Anyway, but Speed, the first <laughs> Listen, one. It was, I maintain yeah. that Speed 2 is a good film. It's just not the film anybody wanted to see because Keanu Reeves wasn't in it. Yeah, exactly. My number two is another one of those ones that was like, oh, this didn't make my list. It is City Slickers from 1991, uh, starring Billy Crystal and Jack Palance and the, the great Bruno Kirby and Daniel Stern. Uh, it's just a funny, funny, funny comedy about these city guys who go out to a dude ranch and, and you know, get wrapped up in this sort of cow herding thing. It's kind of a simple concept, but it works because the characters are really great. Billy Crystal's terrific in it. The writing is razor sharp and it still holds up as a funny comedy even after, you know, 25 years. Uh, it was a big hit for a reason. I loved it back then and I, and I really love it now. And it just got edged out of my list. So I felt like it was time to fix that and and put it here. So that's my number two, City Slickers. Yeah, it's a great film. I'm, 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 enjoy I'm really enjoying this list, though. The fact that it's taking me back to lots of films I need oh, to watch. Oh, ab absolutely. Except for those, you know, three films of yours that I absolutely hate. I, I think it's been a lot of fun. Well, there's a chance <laughs> this could be another one. Oh, all right. Well, let's but, uh, okay. bring it's, it on. Well, let's say, I, I don't know. This one's from 1995. It's a science fiction fantasy film starring Ron Perlman. It is The City of Lost Children, directed by Mark Caro and Jean-Pierre Junot. It's a tough one. How do you explain this? It's set in this gothic kind of cyberpunky kind of fantastical city, and we thought it's about this creature who's on this this man, this thing who's unable to dream. So he's aging prematurely, and he finds if he can extract the steal the dreams from children using this machine, he'll be able to live longer. And he's got this these clones who do jobs for him, and it's about trying to rescue the kids from this this nefarious scientist thing. It's it's a hard one to explain, obviously, because it did a lousy job. <laughs> it's it's similar to uh, Delicatessen and Amelie because same filmmakers were involved. So it's that kind of style, the heightened reality, the fantastical elements and things like this. But it's it's got some amazing uh, sets. It just looks absolutely gorgeous in this rundown, technological, weird place. Uh, Ron Perlman is just so good because he, he he's not covered in prosthetics in this one, but he just has like you know strange haircut and. Uh, and he just, he's this strong man, because he, he always, 
I don't want to say I don't want to be rude and say odd, but he's got you know he's got a strong face, hasn't he? You know yeah. what I mean? You yeah, know? a lot of but, character uh, in his face. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's a good way of putting it. But it's just it's really good. And it's, it's a beautifully bizarre, strange, twisted dream of a film. Very cool. I do not hate that movie, but that's because I haven't seen it. Oh, okay. All right, my number one. I am very excited about. This is a film that came out in 1996. It was not on my top ten list when we did 1996 because I had not seen it yet, and I finally watched it for the first time just recently. So 22 years years after it came out, I finally got around to it. One of those films I always wanted to see and just never sort of came across it. I never got a review copy. I never just, it never came across my desk. Okay. It is Train Spotting. Oh, okay. Wow. Okay. Which cool. is absolutely fantastic. I yeah, loved yeah, it. Yeah. I absolutely loved it. I know it was on your list originally uh, when we did 96. I couldn't put it on my list. Hadn't seen it. Um, and I watched it. I mean, I love Ewan McGregor, but just it's, and I love Danny Boyle. So it wasn't a big surprise that I liked this movie as much as I did. But I think I was surprised even by how much, you know, because everything you hear about Trainspotting is just, oh, giant toilet scene. It's really gross. And that's all you, you know, heroin, you know, it's like, oh, well, great. Yeah. Like how much fun is this going to be to watch? But it's a really really good film that toes the line between comedy and drama and when it goes dramatic it goes really dramatic you know yeah yeah and then when it's funny it's really funny and then it even has some kind of like action scenes and robert carlisle is just terrific and oh his bagby is frightening but also hilarious yeah yeah absolutely it's it's a film i regret having not seen for as long as it took me to see it it was an easy pick for my number one of the 90s of, of movies that we missed because i definitely missed out on seeing this one. Oh, i'm glad you saw it i'm glad you loved it uh it always gets me when it came out as well. To, to people going, "Oh, it glamorizes heroin." And, <laughs> yeah, I really don't. And think I, it I does. remember watching it going, "What, what the hell?" Right. It makes heroin look terrifying. Yeah. Like I do yeah, not want to be like any yeah. of these people. Exactly. I already did never. I never wanted to do heroin. Never have. Never will. But seeing that film really sealed. You know that I never ever wanted to do heroin. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, I made up. You got to see it, and I'm made up. You loved it. I, I thought you might be. <laughs> okay, my number one. It's from 1998. It's a Canadian indie apocalyptic black comedy kind of film by a guy called Don McKellar, who also stars in it with Sandra Oh, Callum Keith Rennie, and David Cronenberg. But it's called Last Night. Uh, okay. It's set in Toronto, and it's basically we're following a group of different people who are preparing for the end of the world. And all we know is it's going to end around about midnight. We don't know why it's going to end, what's going to cause it. But the people on Earth know, have known this is coming, coming for like the past few weeks or maybe, you know, past few months. It's a very funny film. It's a very sad film poignant makes you think it's mainly like a character kind of piece just seeing how people deal with you know the totally unimaginable it's it's a lovely film as well even though it's dealing with this but it's i can't i can't say how much i i just i just love it and it's just track it down i think it was probably on dvd at some point but it's uh, it's last night from 1998 and it's my number one all right good pick you know this is one of those ones that i feel like i saw back in the 90s but i can't remember yeah. if i did or not so i you know i, I might not have seen it I, I don't know yeah you might well have seen it. it's probably one of those ones that came on you know tv late at night you know you finish watching some girl you, you turn over halfway through right and you're watching wondering why this woman Sandra O's walking through the deserted streets of toronto right right it's, yeah it's yeah. Uh, it's it's a cracking one to track down and go, ah, oh, okay. And you could either go, Phil is a genius. Go, what the hell is that guy talking about? All right. Well, last night, good pick. And our last pick for this list, that is our movies we missed from the 1990s. And two very good lists, or at least one very good list and one very good list with three terrible films on it. <laughs> but, uh, oh, Mike, you made me laugh. <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll let that go for now. All right. Well, that's going to wrap up our episode. Phil, before we go, why don't you tell people what we're going to be talking about next week? Yes, we're going to be going after the ending of Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon and The Dark Crystal. So there might be lots of skixies. Yeah. But there we go. All right. Yes, that's that's uh, the films we're doing. And Mike, what about our top 10 next week? Yes, next week we're going to be doing our top 10 movies we missed from the 2000s. And that's a big one. It's going to encompass the year 2000 through 2017 uh, because we need to wrap this up before our big 100th episode, which is only two episodes away now. <sighs> Oh, no. Which is pretty crazy. But, uh, yes, yeah, so everything from 2000 to 2017, we will not be including the films from this year because we're going to do our top 10 at the end of the year. Uh, but there's going to be – that's a lot of movies to choose from. So that's going to be, I think, the, the hardest list yet. But it should be a lot of fun. Yes. It's going to be a lot of work. But, yeah. yes, it'll be good. But, no, yeah, there's uh... – <laughs> There's probably going to be quite a few which we didn't get to see at the time, but we've, we have exactly, now yeah. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And also, I'm guessing a lot of ties because <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. we can squeeze a few extra films in. Yeah, my top 10's actually got 60 films in. Okay. <laughs> right. <laughs> 
Number 10 is a 20-way tie, and uh, let me just list those films for you. And <laughs> uh, number nine are all the films from 2011. <laughs> right. Uh, that's great. But that's next time. Yeah, that's next time. All right, so that's going to do us for now. As always, we thank you greatly for listening. I'm Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards. And I'm Tom Hardy. And I am Yoda. <laughs> and we'll see you next week. After the ending. Well, that's good for you, though. It means when, you, when you're 70, you won't look nearly as old. No, I look, just look like 70 now, so <laughs> that's the thing. Yeah, well, they start, my dad's starting to fall behind in uh, technology, but he shares the office here. Right. And it's like, it's one of them. I can hear him on his computer, and he's like going, clicking click on his mouse, going, <laughs> and I'm just thinking, I'm, I'm just waiting, and then suddenly it's like, hey, Philip, can you just take a look at this? And you're going, oh, okay. And then he just go, he goes, how do you do this? And I go, you click on that. You click on that. And he goes, oh, you've done that before? I said, no, I just read what's on there. <laughs> well, listen, that's better than my mom who just, you know, if she's never met technology, she couldn't make not work. Oh, God. You know what I mean? Like, I can't yeah. tell you how many times she says, something's not working with my cell phone. And I'm like, is it really not working with your cell phone? Or are you not working with your cell phone? Yeah, like, yeah. yeah, mom, that's not that's not a cell phone. That's a TV remote. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but just so you know, when the phone rings, I'm going to answer it. Okay, it's not a bit. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's probably <laughs> not until 5 or 5.30, so. The phone rings, answer it, and then it's, Hi, Mike, I need picking up. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I've just got some fast food, and I can't eat it because of the mask. Would you like it? <laughs> I made a joke. <laughs> the mask I like, I do. Okay. <clears throat> yes, t- okay, so trivia for The Dark Knight Rises. Moving up to the pervy part of pervy, Yoda, I see. <laughs> 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 Tom Hardy. Ooh. Okay. What? Anyway, what did you say? Tom oh, Hardy. Tom. Mm. Okay. You Tom know, Hardy. When you say Tom Hardy with your British accent as Yoda, sometimes I can't quite make it out. I don't know why, but sometimes I lose a little something. Make out, Tom Hardy. You say. <laughs> I didn't enjoy it quite as much because I read the book it's based on first, or was, or was the book based? Anyway, there's a book. Okay. Based on... Anyway, I read a book. Before seeing the film. <laughs> right. All right. Well, my number two is... Hang on. I got to see you. I don't know that one. Who's in that one? <laughs> I was just going to say, that's a terrible name for a movie. <laughs> also could be a movie with Cuba Gooding Jr. and Snoop Dogg, though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and don't forget me. I could be in that movie, too. Yeah. Hang and I got to sneeze, too. Where's the handkerchief? <laughs> You don't want to know what happens when I sneeze inside this mask. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but I do. <laughs>